Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Oh, this is a, a, a conversation with Dr. Bill Blendell, who teaches organization development at Penn State University. I am still processing this conversation moments after it was over. That's sort of our jargon for what in the heck just happened? Wow, that was really fascinating. He's got so many, I don't know, nuanced ways of looking at development for human beings, by human beings, uh, that uh, I just want to know more and more. Uh, and, and I only got a taste of it because I'd never really met Bill before. Found him on LinkedIn. And turns out that we have an awful lot in common. He had connections to several of the people who knew or worked with Peter Vale and had read quite a bit of Peter's work. So that was a nice place for the two of us to find affinity. But beyond that, he just has some wonderful ideas about mindfulness and how it does feed into human and collective human organization behavior and new ways. And the other thing that I just want to mention, and he'll mention it as well, is with several of his colleagues, they've formed something called open source organization development, hmm. which will then gather ideas from all of us who are interested in change and who isn't. <laughs> but we like to be present to help people make positive change in this field of organization development. So now there's this open source concept to pay attention to as you listen to Bill and me talk. Speaking of talking, I'm doing too much. So I'd love to have you learn now with Bill Blendell. Well, hooray, hooray, hooray for LinkedIn. Uh, for a guy who's living a sheltered life now that I've been retired for quite a while, I look at LinkedIn every day and I post about the podcast uh, at, at least twice a week, giving people a little snippet of what I'm learning in these conversations. And I came across uh, Professor Bill Blendel. Brendel. I already, he already <laughs> told me it's Brendel and I was teasing. But I... I I have a very, very difficult problem with names and people following the podcast know that that's true. Uh, but I was fascinated by uh, his profile statement. And I think I might've put out a little teaser of saying, Hey, you look quite interesting what you're doing as a professor organization development and change, mm -hmm. uh, which is a field that uh, Peter Vale and I uh, loved to roam. Uh, as it was developing over the decades, uh, because the focus on change in particular has meaning to any of us teaching leadership and everything connected to it. But the organization development is a much bigger challenge, no matter what era we're talking about. So, Bill, you're at the earlier part of your career. And uh, uh, let's talk a little bit first about you. What brought you here to this moment in time in terms of your professional development? But let's also take a peek at some future possibilities for you as a professor. So what, where, what got you to uh, Penn State University, 
the the the, the big campus teaching uh, in this field. Well, I'm going to uh, thank you for having me, and I'm going to I'm going to pull right from Peter Vale since you mentioned him, and and um, and I'm going to say that what got me here was the white water. Um, oh. You know, I I um, I've been doing organization development slash talent development because nowadays they kind of mush into each other Definitely. Um, uh, since let's see 2001 so um, you know I got into it I kind of stumbled into it by accident I was very interested in industrial organizational psychology but what the heck do you do with it right <laughs> so I had to figure out what do you do with this right so I got my master's degree in social organizational psychology at Columbia, uh, home of Warner Burke, one of my oh, favorite yes. people. Oh, yes. And then I earned a doctorate in adult learning and leadership, which is a really nice complement to that. Yes. Um, I had a really strong interest in transformative learning. And in particular, something we talked about earlier, which is dealing with adaptive challenges, mm-hmm. right? So the work of Ron Heifetz and those sorts of that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does one become a reflective practitioner right. and enable themselves continuously to reinvent themselves, transform their sense of duty, transform the way that they do things, um, and also transform products and services and group processes through facilitation. So this is really what I became interested in until about 2009. And in 2009, I had a significant life event that changed the way I look at organization development forever. Hmm. And that was the death of my uh, younger sister. Oh, dear. It was a sudden death. And frankly, the without getting into too much detail, the difficulty for me was paying attention and being present. And I noticed that my mind was wandering constantly. And the I white understand. water, right? And the white water didn't get any easier. Hmm. Um, so what do you do when you don't know how to deal with something? Nowadays you go to Google. That's exactly what I did. I, you know, that little feeling lucky button under the Google search. I said, I wrote, I typed in, what do you do if your mind doesn't stop wandering? What do you do? And up pops this video of John Kabat-Zinn presenting the art and the, the discipline of mindfulness practice to Google employees. Yeah, And I watched that video. It changed everything. I sought to learn from him directly and spent 70 hours practicing under him, facilitating all of those sorts of things and brought mindfulness directly into this conversation about dealing with adaptive challenges and transformative learning. And so that led me to other authors like Alan Watts and mm-hmm. people who who are ultimately responsible for introducing uh, Zen Buddhism to the West in a big way, Ellen Langer, some of these names. And then the philosophy behind mindfulness and right mindfulness and acting ethically, is it's so antithetical to the Western approach that I thought, oh, this would be a provocative area of research in organization development. Definitely. Right. So a lot of my publications are, you know, they're mixed methods. So I use qualitative and quantitative design, but I basically Mm -hmm. look at the impact of mindfulness practice on three areas of organizational life, 
and see if I can remember these myself. All right. Um, the first one is ethical leadership. Sure. And that's very important. This, and I can talk about any one of these if you want to go down that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is innovation, insight and innovate, direct, real, genuine innovation, not copying what other people are doing or emulating, but really coming up with game-changing uh, product or service that creates a leap in market value. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, which is the base, I consider the base of the first two, is inclusion. Hmm. And ad- addressing inclusion in an Eastern, from an Eastern perspective. So that's become a very hot topic as well. But I'll pause there. And this is really how I found my way. I published my way. I practice. I'm also a practitioner. I, I have a consulting firm called Transformative Learning Institute. Um, and I do work with all types of organizations. And I publish case studies on there about the approach that I use. So I use that with my class as well. Wow, that's a great introduction. And and it strikes me that you are the future (laughs) that I talked about a moment before. In this regard, first, there was rarely a time when any of us professors appeared on LinkedIn, Mm. Facebook, you know, all the others. We that was just not done. Mm. And I'd always I always wondered about that. Because business people, young professionals and, and others in transfer transition and people producing uh, books and, and conferences that they want, it was a place to go. It was, a, it was not a marketplace so much for jobs. It was just a marketplace for people who want to uh, put out uh, a vibration, if you will. Yes. You know, yeah. I exist. I exist. Yes. And, and so uh, I think of Scott Allen, who was in an earlier episode of my podcast, who's, who, who, who does that as a professor from a school out here in the East. Uh, very, very active. I've also met him in our organization behavior teaching conferences. And he's, he's out there and he has a podcast. And you mentioned just before we became acquainted and started the recording that, you know, you're, you're reaching out to quite a few different people. So let me uh, first say uh, the universality of your interest, but anchored in mindfulness is, is uh, intriguing because it is like you're in the middle of the ocean <laughs> uh, of all the kinds of things that are going on in organization change which roots is which is rooted in individual human changing it's all there but it's it's where do you um set your uh your uh what do they call that thing that they used to read the stars and find out where they were in the middle of the ocean right right yep (laughs) i can't think of the name of the tool Um, but it, it 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 was something that preceded the gps by a few centuries but you had to have something that you could position yourself in order to find out where you are and and know where you're if you're headed in the right direction and i'm hearing that you saying that you're discovering uh, after the unfortunate death of your sister that 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 the mind uh and the eastern thought which brings the mind to to bear if you will uh is was a place where you were able to a sexton, that's what they call it. Oh, right. Yep. Uh, where you found a way to keep yourself going forward. Could you help the less informed listeners to, to, to know, a, I hate to take something as elegant as mindfulness and ask you to 
summarize it in, in a nutshell, but uh, what what's your uh, quick take on telling people what mindfulness is? I'm going to take a page from the uh, the amazing author Alan Watts and say that mindfulness is this. Notice the silence. Notice how you feel. Notice the quality of your awareness. The formal definition that 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 sort of you know wor- words always fail to capture mindfulness because the I, minute you start talking, that. right? The minute you start talking, you're making judgments about reality. And mindfulness is the the awareness that arises by paying attention on purpose without judgment. That's the definition by John Kabat-Zinn, and so. It turns out that that's incredibly hard for people. And and another thing I'll kind of draw from John is that he uses the the analogy of a telescope. So a lot like a sexton, right? Okay. And you can look (laughs) through it, right? So that's your thinking. You're thinking, and that's what we do all day. We get rewarded for it. We get, right? It's good to have opinions and be clever. But but that sexton, that that telescope, whatever it is that your, your lens for the world is on top of a waterbed, right? So that's your consciousness. It's constantly moving and churning. And that's not a bad thing. Mindfulness doesn't mean calming the waters completely. What it means is that you're paying attention to it and that you're flexing that muscle of bringing your attention back and focusing. There's a lot of ways to do it, but focusing very specifically on something that anchors your attention to the present moment. It could be your breathing. It could be um, the way that the light plays off of your child's face. It could be anything. It could be that when you're brushing your teeth, you're simply brushing your teeth and you're not having your whole first meeting of the day in the bathroom conceptually. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my little, and and along with that, you know, Along with that is the idea of, that's the clinical definition, right? So that was the one that was secularized so people could feel comfortable about studying it. And, but, the, but the other part that's lost on, on Western, Westerners and Easterners for that matter is what's called right mindfulness. Mm. And that is the ability to pay attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment that leads to doing things that are selfless because even thinking about self-concept and what I need and what I, what you can give me, that is monkey mind. They call it when you're (laughs) selfless, you tend to do the right thing. In fact, I just did a, a major article on that that came out in a journal called ethics and behavior and studied, uh, hundreds of professionals on the impact of applied mindfulness on moral disengagement. Okay, at work. And those are ways that people subconsciously, out of direct awareness, because they're not paying attention to it, talk themselves out of doing the right thing. Even the very most conscious, uh, most up to speed, ethical feeling people make very bad decisions because they're not paying attention to their inner voice and how that's being directed by their ego and their their needs. Um, and so there's this right mindfulness aspect to mindfulness. That's that's where the ethics come in. I like that. I, 
that I have not heard, uh, and 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 yet it it I'm already sensing how that dovetails into some work that uh, my son started when he was well finished when he finished his doctorate, and looking at conversational analysis, looking at the relationships of two people in conversation very deeply, with the notion that he uh, found that 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 in those moments like we're having right now, you are enacting an organizational agreement between two people. Yes, we are at this moment in the podcast. That's the organizational affiliation for the moment. But it's that it's the clarity of awareness in the moments of conversation that now you're helping me see fits in with the, with the right uh, my mindfulness, because it, it in the inter in the in the terms of talk, if you will, we're building a relationship, and in the organization development world, we're all about relationships. But sometimes we don't look at them at the micro level, and so this is what I'm asking for people to do for a few moments, because we all have access to these moments all through the day, daily, everyday, normal stuff which is where a tremendous amount of what you're studying and teaching about happens. For example, when an idea comes through of such power that it could be original and could lead kick into the second tier of your interest, the innovation interest in a conversation. Yes. But if people aren't really present, huge P present in those moments. I doubt if those kind of ideas come about. Am I making sense here? I'm, I'm shouldn't be telling you your, I can validate. uh, Let me validate what you're saying. I mean, this is a really big deal and this is the other part. So, so far I've talked about ethics, right? Mm -hmm. The other part is innovation and the, the Zen Buddhist perspective, there's, there's thousands of ways that you can practice mindfulness or secular, religious, all of these different ways. But the Zen Buddhist form, which is the form that I look at, which is a combination of, of Hinduism and Taoism mm-hmm. and Mahayana Buddhism, just to throw out some fancy terms, mm-hmm. it uses uh, a form of meditation that I described, paying attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment. And that is, it comes from a form of meditation called Vipassana. And that translates to mean insight meditation. Ah. Okay. Mm. What happens invariably without seeking ideas, without trying to be relaxed, when you simply sit, what the Japanese call shikantaza, simply sitting, when you do that, invariably ideas come to you. It is, a, it is a letting be and letting come. This is very different than the, the tackling aggressive way that businesses have, right? I mean, think about it. The last time you did brainstorming, a lot oh. of times you're asking employees to go from zero to 60 miles per hour. Yeah. And you get some, I mean, if, unless you're completely creative at heart, you don't really get the best, the better ideas come when you leave. Think about where you have your best ideas. That's right. That's something I always ask in the shower when you're just relaxing. <laughs> when you're with a buddy and you're having a beer, right? And you're just, and there's no judgment. There's no, ju- it's just being and feeling completely comfortable. And then the ideas come to you. 
And then you feed, you become very aware of that and savor that excitement when you land on something together. And that thing is what I believe is a way of being to Peter Vale's. Now, the Eastern perspective on a way of being and cultivating that with other people is called the Dharma. I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. That's the way. And the way is losing self, truly being with another. And then without trying to resolve anything, that's another Western thing. Without trying to resolve anything at all, allowing the tension, whatever it is, to reveal some insight. So uh, one way to look at this, and then I'll kind of pause here. We could go, I could talk forever. No, no, this is very, very, and I think it's interesting to the listeners too, definitely. Well, I, I'll just say the listener can probably relate to having someone who annoys the heck out of them in their life, right? We always very have one, possibly. Very one possibly. antagonist, right? Our <laughs> lives are like stories. We have, we're the yeah. protagonist, right? And we're, yeah. and then we're, we're always the good guy. Yeah. Like person. where did all the bad guys, where are all the bad guys? If we're all good guys, <laughs> right? So there's antagonists in our mind. That's a construction, but we could, a form of applied mindfulness practice called reframing would say that you could actually look at that person as your greatest spiritual teacher. That when, when you bump into things that make you irritated, that that actually is fertile soil for self-discovery. And I know that probably the initial thought is, no way, that person annoys the heck out of me. They're never going to be. But just notice that judgment and the, let go of it because that's all it is. It's not reality. And coming back to some, some feeling in the body and just noticing it not trying to get rid of it. If it's that pain in the neck, literally a pain in the neck, just noting that it's a pain in the neck and not writing a full length narrative about it. And when you do that, you create a space. And there's lots of people who write about this, Viktor Frankl, right? That space that allows you to respond instead of react. So this is, to me, this is like, you know, it's just so fascinating and there's so many different applications right now. And I think the one that is most important is helping people be with the white water, not trying to calm it down. That's how you drown. Right. Oh, yeah. You fight that white water, you're dead. Or turn around and try to swim back up. <laughs> swim against the stream. Right. Yeah. So what do you do? Any good surfer knows that what you do when you get panicked is you sink in. Yeah. You drop into the water. Let it carry and, you. Right? You just you just actually let you kind of let go and you you go under the water. And there you can collect your thoughts. You know, you only have a few seconds, right? But that's all <laughs> you need. That's all you need to to come back up. And I'm writing a book right now about this. I I quote Peter Vale in the book In the the preface of the book, and I invoke the imagery of the great wave by Hokusai, this Mm -hmm. this beautiful artwork. And you'll know it if you Google it. It's that big wave crashing and Mount Fuji's in the background. And there's a little boat that's just getting tossed all around. That's precisely how the modern employee feels right now and the modern leader. Um, That's right. That's right. And uh, 
And, and that kind of rounds out the connection and congratulations on another book. I look forward to reading it. And, uh, and also thinking of Peter, uh, the, the, see, if you go to the micro level that I mentioned, and now we're down to one person, really one person in between two who hears what you're saying and goes, Hey, I think right now, just like a moment ago, you showed us the definition by being silent. I think right now, this because this, why not this moment to practice this kind of this uh, Zen experience? Why not? Why not? To drop down. And the other person's like, hey, hello, are you there? Wait, wait, wait we got, we got it. I've only got five more minutes for this meeting. And the other person, very calm. It yes. could be revolutionary. It can. <laughs> One person uh, sort of. Yes, that's a really. And coming at that very moment, yeah. people are going, hey, look at Bob. <laughs> Something's going on with Bob. Uh, but I, I, so that's part of it. But the other thing is that once there's even one tiny little iteration of something different, it could start to maybe have people feel like changes in the wind, changes possible. And it's not necessarily going to be ca catastrophic change, which is in this moment we're living in with the whole world on the edge of catastrophe. And yet, Yes. You want to have a, a career ahead, and I want to have at least another dozen years before I pass away. So what what are we saying? What are you saying, importantly? What are you saying then to help a person in an organization development um, modality where it, it is a more than about them and more than about the moment? It's about big chunks of moment for that organization moving ahead. And people are feeling like the, the big waves crashing on them. Yeah, there's, I believe this in my bones, and this comes from not just the theoretical and the philosophical side of Eastern wisdom traditions, it comes from direct experience. And that is that difficult issues in organizations, take, take diversity, equity, and inclusion, for instance. Yeah. I just, a book came out yesterday. I wrote the overview for the book in chapter one for this book, it's called Rethinking Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. It's by Rutledge. Mm -hmm. And the chapter begins by saying, talking about a change practitioner in this space who, despite the best intentions, despite training his employees, despite just all the listening sessions and presentations and, and in survey instruments and everything that he poured, all that time and effort that he poured in, mm -hmm. it backfired. Hmm. It completely backfired. It 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 in innumerable ways, and and just I, I juxtapose that against someone who came in, and instead of trying to push change, or even even just like introduce it in a way that you know the banking style of education here, put this in your head because yeah. it's important that all felt like just one more imposition in a world of whitewater. So what mm -hmm. did this other person do that was fascinating? And to me, I thought this was great. It was, she found a balance between invitation and information. There's a balance. Mm -hmm. And she did this across varying uh, dimensions. And I, I, there's a survey in there. You can take it. So many self scoring surveys, but it's along the dimension of leadership, learning, 
strategy, structure, culture. And what this woman did was nothing less than short of, I mean, she, she should have won. Actually, she is winning a 40 under 40 award uh, either today or tomorrow. But, but, but what she did was she was quiet and she listened and she brought presence and it was completely different than anything anyone had ever been used to. <laughs> Think about this. This is a way of being, right? Let's yeah, go back to Peter. We got to celebrate big Peter Vale here. Yeah. yeah. And and then what would happen is she would this is very eastern. She would see the energy that was coming, the resistance, the we tried this before, this is problematic, mm-hmm. we had a revolt, people left and just listen. Step mm-hmm. 1. Silence. Rumi the, the, yeah, the, po- the poet, poet, he has this poem I love, and it goes, it's very short, and it goes, there's a way between voice and presence where information flows. In disciplined silence, it opens. In wandering talk, it closes. So now the OD practitioner that is going to succeed today needs to be quiet, needs to listen. A lot of times we feel like we're doing OD. But just listening creates a space for the speaker to, to find their own insights. This is very Rogerian, right? Carl Rogers wrote a book called Ways of Being, I think. Peter loved that and studied uh, Roger, uh, Carl Rogers. That was mm-hmm. his, one of his most early influences as an undergraduate as well as in his master's at Harvard. And, and he would be happy to hear you citing Kyle Rogers and and that and and I hate to take away from the flow of your conversation oh, too please. much, but but the it, but the point is that the um, things that were said about Peter, as I've had different conversations, almost always came to this. He has could have said so much. He was encyclopedic in his knowledge. He could cite you name it, and he had read it, and he could remember it. Instead, he was quiet. <laughs> he, <laughs> he listened. He asked questions and actually waited for an answer. And, and now we're talking about a, a person over 50-some years career, but he was in the middle of all these chaotic, he would go out and be an OD consultant, and it would almost always be, thrashing around for what are we going to do? The Japanese are killing us with a product quality, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And, and I was a student and I had the same experience, direct experience. Uh, I expected um, he was going to tell us a lot about what we should know about organization and organization behavior. Mm -hmm. And from the very first moment of the very first class, he said, I'm not going to tell you anything. But if you ask me, I, I will give you a good answer. But you are going to drive the inquiry mm-hmm. and I'll participate. He called it co-inquiry. He wrote about right. it. Right. Yep. Yep. And, 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 and I use that for 50 years of my teaching career. But uh, now look at the space between where the information flows mm-hmm. that this young uh, practitioner seemed to be able to enact at that moment. What kind of information then flows that wouldn't have otherwise, you think, flowed through among these people so that they could start being newly informed? What, what sort of information? 
it's kind of amazing. I, I, the, the, the audience might agree or disagree with me. I, I've seen this work. Um, and just think about what, what these folks are used to. They're, being, they're used to being told this is what works and this is not what does not work. That's management consulting. That's a whole different beast, right? Um, then again, you could come in and you can ask really great questions. But I would say that even now, this is, might be a little bit revolutionary, but now that can be a little too much as well. And I know that people would think, well, if you're going to just sit there quietly, what are they paying you for? They're paying you for your wisdom. Uh -huh. And silence is wisdom. It is a tool. Emptiness is the mother of all being, right? The Taoism, the, mm -hmm. the Taoist, mm -hmm. the I Ching, motherness. Now, so what you do is you create that space and you listen and you validate. You repeat. I'm what I'm hearing you say is. Now, what happens is it's like it's like the person has a blockage, right? This is very like Eastern, but just really think about this in practical terms. The person is coming out, they're saying this and that, and we always face this and we always face that. And then the OD practitioner's first reaction is, well, let's think possibility thinking and let's let's mm. look at your assumptions. And that actually feels more like a continuation of the blockage. Yeah, it can it feel can. like putting a stopper on the energy. So what you can do is you invite more. You just, you just listen. You listen more. You take notes. You show, And you genuinely listen. And then what ends up happening is that negative energy eventually works okay. itself out, just like a hose in the, in, after a long winter or, yeah. or a pipe. You're getting all that rust out. Mm -hmm. And then somehow clarity, the water becomes clear and the person... And your job then is like Peter said, Peter Vale, you capture it. Yeah. And that is the essence of holding what a lot of people say OD is, which is holding a mirror up to the organization. Mm -hmm. And that's really all you're doing. And, and check this out. You shouldn't take credit for any of it. Oh, that's the hard part for a guy with an ego like mine. <laughs> well, oh my gosh, everybody. I just, I well, just saved it. Ford. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And then, of course, you got to sell yourself. But do, you, but do you have to sell yourself, right? Yeah. Sometimes the best referrals you get are from your former clients. And, of that's course, right. repeat business is part of that. So you, you want to have that special something that most people don't have in the organization. It is wisdom. It is silence. It is the ability to reflect back clearly with unvarnished, none of your op-ed on the subject. That, again, that's management consulting. Mm -hmm. And allow the person to come to the discovery themselves, to see the shadow on the wall and to liberate themselves. That's kind of, that's kind of, I think if there's anything that's revolutionary about that, it's that all of the tools that we have in our tool belt, the OD practitioner, right? Some of them have like one, it's like a hammer, like yeah. appreciative inquiry is a hammer, right? It's good. It works, but not in every situation. That's right. Not in every situation. So ironically, I'm talking a lot and I'm saying silence is important. So oh, I always yes. think, well, that's it's a podcast. We couldn't have 30 <laughs> minutes of silence. I suppose we could, we could introduce it. And let people have a, the peace and quiet of 30 <laughs> minutes with something in their ear. And it's not 
telling them anything. They're just letting them think. But now I'm, a, I'm going to answer my own question because oh, I think please. You, you, you answered it. I asked you where the information, what information starts to flow once the, you know, all the ick is out and, and they are unblocked and they're in, in that in-between space. Mm-hmm. And now my answer for your concurrence or not is the information is it's there it's it's been there the poetry is already in here <laughs> yeah it's not like right? they're gonna pull something off the wall now it, it they're discovering things that that their own mind will give give them as, the, as a way forward or just a way not even forward just a way i think that the the clear the thing that really bothers people a lot and this is i'm not talking about you in particular just like People want to take an idea, they want to bracket it, they want it to be concrete, they want to sell it, they want to measure it, and they want to do something with it. True. But the minute you bracket it, you've blocked the flow. So the information is a, it's it's more of, if we could change our language and say informationing. Yeah. It's a continuous, so. Info, yeah. Yeah. So So the other thing is a lot of times we run with the first idea. Right. And we try to make it perfect. But if you look at design thinking, what does it do? It says, first of all, you are developing this not for your client. You're doing it with them. Mm-hmm. You're really doing it with them. And it begins with empathy. It's the first rule of design thinking. Mm-hmm. But you never create a finished pilot. It's always evolving. So that's why I think a lot of OD folks are incorporating design thinking into their their routines now, human-centered design. Um, it's kind of a neat new topic. Oh, I think you're on mute. This is a Zoom casualty. My Lord. I Well, I had, I was muting only because the very first day that someone's going to, that my, my lawn mower guy <laughs> arrives is when in the middle of our conversation. <laughs> and he yeah. has this machine. Well, I have a, a very large yard out here in the country. And... <laughs> It's quite loud, but uh, I, I'll be able to kind of strain some of that out when I'm doing the editing. But uh, I I wanted to get to that point though. Uh, when I muted, I can't remember what it was, but it was I know it was brilliant. I, I get it. It doesn't have to be brilliant. That's the point. It no. it is it it'll be really a ting. That notion of yes. ing is is so important. I told you before we started that the book that I have, I am, I said, I finished the book that Peter started as I promised. And with, with my illustrations uh, between of, of the things that I think that Peter was, was offering us. Mm-hmm. But what I really wanted to say is I hope it's never finished. Now I know my wife, mm-hmm. if she heard me say that she would scream. Of course I've lived in this <laughs> office for two years working uh, on it delightfully. But the point is that we went digital with the book in part, because if something comes up a year from now, mm-hmm. and one of those conjectures is could be really made more important to it, its readers, I can go back in with concurrence from, from a publisher and say, Hey, let me just change my narrative around this particular concern. We're not changing Peter's words, but we can change how they might be used. Mm-hmm. And so and this notion of, of, of keeping it fluid and keeping it going, I know Peter would have loved as much as he'd like to say something's finished. One of the reasons he loves sailing, I can, I'm sure of this, is he loves sailing out there in the Michigan lakes as a kid, uh, competitive sailing. Oh, wow. It, yeah. Is that, 
is the experience of sailing of, of not, you know of noticing so much and having all your senses completely engaged in the middle of a race because you get the wind you get water you've got water conditions you've got where the other boats are you've got a you've got a buoy you got to figure out how to turn on that buoy mm-hmm. peter just loved being in the middle of that mm-hmm. and he often said that that's when he come would come out into a classroom or give a t- a talk which he said he barely ever wanted to be asked to do a talk, meaning you come with your PowerPoints. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be involved, engaged. And so in, in some ways he was anticipating where you are now in your, in your thinking and development. And he would have, uh, because the notion of something changing is that, that we have to accept that it, it might, keep on changing beyond when we want it to. You know what I mean? It's like the sorcerer's apprentice. Mm -hmm. Uh, So as we're moving, I'd love to give this more time, but unfortunately I'm budgeting for the sake of the listener, but Bill, we'll do, we'll do more of this, but where are you headed now in your work? You mentioned a chapter, you mentioned a book. How are you taking this forward so that a lot of us can benefit from from your insights. Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm, I'm working on a new project, which is, is very different. And I'll tell you, I'll give you the contours. I won't get into it too deeply. Um, for the reader or the listener to check out a website called okay. opensourceod.com. Opensourceod.com. Now, immediately, the listener might be thinking, well, that's self-serving because I'm going, he's plugging his website. And the reason it's called open source is because it's not my website, even though I'm working on it. I have a team of researchers helping me. That site is dedicated to and 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 allows for anyone who considers himself a change agent, whether they call himself OD or whatnot, if they're working on social change efforts, if they're working on corporate change efforts, if it's somewhere in between, like a B Corps, something like that, to come together and do three things. The first is to design new ways, new methodologies, um, OD approaches, we call them OD, but, but really whatever it is, arose by any other name. And that's using something called innovation labs. And so that is a design thinking space where anyone can come, collaborate, create something, put it um, out there. That's a lovely idea. And depending on how popular it is and good it is, it rises or falls in the rankings, just like software, right? So that's one. Somebody could become the next Peter Vale or the David Cooper writer, but they just need that open space. So that's the first one. And there's two more. Um, the second one is a career calling assessment. And what it does is it asks people questions about what their natural talents are what their sources of joy are, what type of change do they want to create in the world? And then we're doing an analysis of the jobs that meet those particular criteria. So we're matching change agents from around the world through this assessment with real jobs. And we're doing it with machine learning. So that that's kind of next on the schedule is to use AI to do web scraping of jobs but analyze it through the coding of what makes work meaningful. 
And how can we provide some pathways? Because this world, this OD world is complex. It is very, very complex. Mind-boggling, actually. It, right? <laughs> and what holds it together? So my, the other thing is I think that these common values, these core values, no matter what you're doing, if you have those values, it is your way of being and you are doing OD by simply uh, embodying your values, right? But there are many different manifestations, many different job titles, consulting opportunities. So we wanted to create an open space for that discussion, even for employers. Now, the third one is, is one that is really one of my favorites, and that is the use of virtual reality, OD experiences based on real Lifetime Achievement Award winners case studies, okay, where we drop the, the person into the shoes of that practitioner. And they have an opportunity to engage in a real adaptive challenge, one where there's no right or wrong with real actors who engage. They're pre-recorded, but it's like a choose your own adventure. So you, you're dropped in, you're in a boardroom or in an office, and you start exchanging ideas, and then options come up, and you select it, and then you move to the next scene that is the consequence of your decision but there is no clear, beautiful outcome. It is just one big mess, but a, but a beautiful mess. And that is kind of the real world of OD. And to create that open space so that people can actually make mistakes. They could even make mistakes on purpose and see what happens. Of course. That is the third and final piece of this openspace.com. And it's all free. All free. And all collaborative. And that's the, the that's, new thing. It's, it's brilliant, and I, I'm delighted to know about it, and I'll be there. Believe me, Wonderful. even though I'm about to turn 79 next week, I've, I've got a few more years where I want to keep this head cooking and looking. Uh, but mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering, as we're closing here, why are you doing this? What's in it for you, Bill Bendel? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll end with a quote from John Kabat-Zinn. Self-care and being is not selfish unless you assume that you are separate from the world and the universe that gave rise to you. So I challenge the premise of the question. What's in it for us? That's the real question. What's in it for us? I hope that I hope that helps and doesn't feel like a dodge, but that's that's no. genuinely how I feel. <laughs> it's not a dodge. And okay. let, me, let me kind of put the symmetry together here. Yeah, I, please. Uh, the other uh, podcast I recorded this week was with Catherine Kaplan, who had been one of Peter's doctoral students at George Washington and delightful person, OD practitioner for, for her career. And uh, I, I turned the tables and I said, Catherine, why don't you ask me two questions? Why David? Meaning, why did Peter choose me to work on the book when there were so many more accomplished authors than I? And the other was, why, David? And this goes to your mm. point. The question of why have you spent the last two and a half years of your time thinking and talking and listening about practice when it's such a huge, vast ocean of whatever it is? And why, why was it such that Peter gave the last weeks of his life to the same question. What about it? Neither of us were going to make a nickel on that, even if it was thousands of money that rolled in as a result of what we were doing. We would have done it anyway. 
And it seems to me that what you're doing with the open source organization development.com, that three part wonderful, uh, I, I almost like a, uh, what is the name of the, 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 the circus that is, oh, Cir- Circus Olay. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. This yep. to me is a Circus Olay of organization development. Why not? There's going to be so much going on, so many people trying out creative things all at once, and there will be an audience. And, and, and it seems to me exactly the right time for it because we're straining to get away from as much as we revere some of the founders of the fields of organization development, organization behavior, uh, we honor the hell out of them. Absolutely. We need fresh thinking and it's not likely to come from people who are following the tenure track uh, because it tends to compress any chance that they're going to have wonderfully spontaneous ideas to the point in, well, after I'm tenured, now I'm going to be really creative. (laughs) You're like, "Uh Oh, wait a minute. I stopped being creative. So I think this is great. It's exciting news, um, Bill Blindell. And, and uh, I've, I'm looking to get after you for a 2.0 Bill Blindell. I want to hear more about how this is unfolding more about your book. And, you know, uh, the idea of, mindfulness of being absolutely peaceful in the middle of all the noise and chaos, like the person mowing my lawn out there. <laughs> it, it is, it's, it's, it's something I can try now because the thing I said to Catherine at the end, she said, well, what are you going to do now that things are finished? And I, and I didn't have a really good answer. Now I do. I'm Kath, Catherine and the world I'm going to actually try being quiet for a change, <laughs> but really yeah. quiet, sure. really and, quiet. And, you you let, and this is the trick. Ready? This is the neat trick. Let that guy who's out there mowing the lawn, making all that noise. Let that My be annoyance. a reminder. Let it be a reminder. Now's a good time to practice. Smell the grass clippings. There's so <laughs> much, so much right there, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. This has been awesome. I, I really am looking forward to recommending your podcast to everyone I know. And this is really a great experience. This is Assistant Professor Bill Blendell, Penn State University, a practitioner of theory development, not just a theorist, a person who believes that we can push the envelope way out there. Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.